We went through that week and everything that the man said was was inspiring and enlightening and 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 my my view of church really really began to change that week and the importance of church and what church was all about started to change. He, he talked about us about how uh, house churches can play a wonderful role in our society, something that didn't seem to fit the denomination that we're a part of, uh, nor did it fit what I believed about church, but he opened up some ideas about those things to me. He talked about how if we we can do good church while taking a, a walk with our spouses. And, and it was just really an enlightening thing for me to think about that and how I should minister to my future wife at, at that time. And, and so my eyes were really opened. A moment stands out during that class that doesn't make me look very good, but, but it kind of symbolizes what was, what was taking place in the class and, and in my heart. We were, we were making a list of, of things that we would like in our own church someday, a church that we would be a part of. And uh, I actually uh, wrote those things down as we went through them, and I still have the notes. I don't have notes from many classes, but from that class I do. And uh, Excitement, uh, culture being engaged, people coming to salvation, spiritual unity, credibility in the community, having the community's best interest at heart, generosity, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And and so we brought up this list and then we were discussing it and he was talking to us about what it would take for those things to happen. And, and his main theory was that, that it's going to take the Holy Spirit moving in a congregation through prayer. Okay, now I'm young, I'm in seminary, I'm still pretty young, but I was younger then and, uh, and it just didn't fit me or what I had learned in my undergraduate work. And so I raised my hand and I, I, I laugh a little and I'm ashamed at the same time and I say, well... Okay, besides the Holy Spirit, what do we need to make these things happen? You know, I wasn't sold at that point. And, and, and he looks at me, and I don't remember the words that he said, but his, his look said enough. He, he looked at me as if to say, you realize that you just asked me. What better plan is there than the Holy Spirit's movement in a congregation? And the whole class knew he was looking at me that way. They were probably wondering the same question, but they all looked at me that way too. And so he made his point very clear. There is nothing more powerful than the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And I was really impacted by that. And Later in, in the week, or actually it was before that class, because I had two weeks down there and two classes. They were intensive courses. A fellow student made a comment that, that has also stuck with me during uh, the last several years. He, he raised his hand after a kind of a group discussion where we broke off, and he said, he said, uh, you know, I believe that church should be the most uncomfortable place for people who are not followers of Jesus because they should not understand the interaction that we have with God during our services. At the time, my initial reaction was like, idiot, um, that can't be right. But as, I, I, as the years have gone on, that, that thought has still kind of, kind of been something that I've wrestled with and tried to figure out. I'm not sure that I fully agree. Uh, I'm not sure that I fully disagree, but it really made an impact on me that I, I'm not sure what that impact is, but it impacted me. And so I came back from those classes and I was running the young adult group and some of you were in that young adult group. And, and you know that some serious changes happened in our young adult group at that time. I really, I really started to do things in a way that made everybody uncomfortable and, and God really blessed it and, and we started to grow in our young adult group and we were running big numbers for the size of church that, that we are and, and it was really fascinating to see. I mean, we would have like a 15 minute period 
where Sean would strum on his guitar and we would walk around praying for each other, each other, either silently or out loud. Now, picture yourself being a visitor. You walk in, it's dark, somebody's strumming a guitar and everybody's moving around praying for each other and some people are coming up and laying their hands on you and praying. Very uncomfortable, but people kept coming back. And so my, my whole like church paradigm was, was kind of being altered. I wouldn't say it had fully shifted, but another thing happened from, from that week down at seminary at I wanted to know more about church. I became very interested in, in studying church. And so I had all these great books on church that I had never read, but it really looked good as I was studying to be a pastor to have them, you know. And, and so I had all these books and I started to read them. And, and as I read them, I really, I started to be more and more interested in church and, and, and I started to keep really good notes and I have a very big, uh, computer file of, of notes on the church and things that come out of these books and, I ran out of books on my own to read, at least ones that, that seemed a, li- a little bit interesting. I still have a couple that it's like, I'll never read you, but it looks good on my shelf. And anyway, and, and so I, I was, I have, I was getting some books to listen to, and, and some of you have heard me talk about this book before, but, but I had an extra credit on this account that I have to listen to books on audible.com, a great website. And there was this book called um, The Gift of Church, How God Designed the Local Church to Meet Our Needs as Christians. I had a free book. It didn't look like something I wanted. It was small. It wasn't very long, which I wasn't getting as much for my money. But I put it in my cart, metaphorically, and, and, I, and I, bought, I bought this book. And it turned out, I don't remember the other books that I got that day, but, but this book totally altered my view of church in a profound way. The first chapter, uh, the book is by Jim Sammer, by the way. It's called God in Concert. And he talked about some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, God being most intensely present when his followers gather. And he made the connection between what happened at Mount Sinai and what takes place within the church. And so a little while after that, after I had read this book... of writing I would I would recommend the book it's really small easy to read simple but it's it's so profound uh, a little while later about a year ago now I guess I wanted to preach on it and so started to study this topic of of the church's connection to God's presence and what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament and and that's when I begin to see this connection between Pentecost what happened on the church's birthday, and what happened at Mount Sinai. And so I sent an email off to Jim Samra, the author of this book, and I said, hey, I don't know if, if you made this discovery, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing you did because your book came out of your doctoral work. And, and so I'm thinking you did, but I'd like to discuss it more. Could you send me an email if you have time? And, uh, and he sent me an email back and said, I'd love to talk on the phone. And so we end up having this phone conversation, me and this author, and, and, and in the conversation I found out, first of all, that, that uh, he hadn't discovered that, and so I felt pretty good about myself. But, but second of all, he said some other things that, that took my view of church a step further. He said, you know what's really fascinating is that with the Israelite people, you see that when they leave each other, they continue to be a people because of the experience that they've had when gathered and the promise of a future gathering together. And so he said to me, he said, you see it in the local church. We gather together and so we call ourselves a church, but we continue to be a church when we leave. And then he said, even, even maybe more important, is that we 
consider ourselves a universal church connected to Christians everywhere because someday we have the pro- we have the promise now that someday we will gather together in unity and worship God when we get into heaven. And so uh, these thoughts are all in my head but but I was witnessing this problem. In the churches I've been a part of and in the churches that I've visited, I don't see the power of God working and the way that I should expect if, if church really is the place where God manifests His presence most clearly. In Samer's book, the, the book I just mentioned, he gave a couple of ways that God shows up. He, he said what, what I mentioned last week, that people will hear things out of a sermon that the pastor did not say, and that is the presence of God manifesting itself. And I agree with that. And I also, another, another thing that I see and that I've observed in the presence of God is, is that oftentimes... If you haven't lived a very good life during the week and you show up to a service and you're gathered with God's people, then all of a sudden guilt kind of wells up in you. And you weren't guilty at 8.30 a.m., but at 9, as soon as that music hits, you start to feel some guilt inside of you. And I believe that is because the presence of God reminds us and convicts us of sin. And so I see some of that there. But I wasn't satisfied because I feel like the American church should be growing and prospering if really God is manifesting Himself most clearly in the presence of people gathering. And so I came up with this theory. It's happened within the last year or so. I said, maybe, maybe we're not seeing God's presence as powerfully as we would like because churches are not being obedient to what God has commanded church to be in the Bible. And I thought about the Israelite people, and I, I thought about kind of their, their history. And what you see in their history is pretty simple. God manifests His presence when they assemble together until they stop being obedient to the things that God wants, and then God seems to, in their minds, disappear. And so they get exiled off into another nation or whatever. They lose wars, and then, and then what do they say to God? They say, hey God, and you see this in their prayers throughout the Old Testament, hey God, where did you go? Why aren't you listening to us? Why is your face no longer shining upon you? And usually God sends a prophet and says, hey, it's because you've been disobedient to me. You have not followed through on the commands that I gave you when I called you to be my people and gave you my presence. And so with that in mind, and what me and Jim Samra had talked about, about gathering and being a people and and being so similar to the Israelite nation as as a church, as an individual local church, I I started to say, well, well, maybe it really is because we're not being obedient to God. This raised a problem for me because, because I couldn't have told you three commands that the Bible makes to the church at this point when I was theorizing this. And you say, well, come on, Chad, you have to be able to name some commands that the Bible makes to church, even, even if you haven't studied it, right? But, but I would say, you know, don't, you can think about it. Don't say it out loud. I don't want you to make me look bad. But, but really, I mean, in your mind, could you name three commands that the Bible makes to church and to a local congregation? I'm guessing no. And really, the things that come to mind are the things that the early church did that we think of in the Bible, right? Well, they gathered together and they broke bread and they listened to preaching. But funny thing is, those things are not necessarily commanded in the places that we think about. They are just described as being what took place. And so here's what I did. I said, well, 
I'm going to be a pastor someday probably because now I have this new heightened sense of excitement about the church because I see its connection to the presence of God and I believe that that the church is God's plan to minister to this world and to show people Himself. And, And so I better find out what the commands are that are in the Bible that are made to the church. And so I opened up the New Testament and I began to read it and I began to mark out every command that the Bible made about church. In fact, I, I marked every place that the church is talked about and, and I, I began to break those things down into things that are described and things that are, are uh, just um, that demonstrate what the church is. Uh, and then things that are commanded to us. And, and I made this great list, and you can have a copy of that list if you want a copy of that list. I have it in a numbers file, which is the Mac version of Excel. I can put it in Excel for you. And it's this great list. And as I looked at it, I started to see that, that the commands made to church can be split up into three different categories. And, 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 you know, us as Americans, we like categories, and my brain works that way. And so I split them into these categories. And, and the first category is to leaders the leaders of a church, specifically the elders and the deacons in a church. And there's things that are commanded to them that they need to do for their congregation and with their congregation, even to their congregation. second list was things about the organization of church and the corporation of church, if you even will. And there's some commands in the Bible that, that really just describe what the organization of church needs to be about. It needs to support missionaries out there in the world financially. That is a biblical command to the church. And we do that pretty well here through the Southern Baptist denomination. Then there was a final category. It's the most important category to you. And that was the category that I would label the things that the people of a church need to be about and need to do. You may not know this or not. Hopefully you do, because I've been talking about it for the last year. But, but there are things in the Bible that are commanded of you and your church involvement. Not things that the Bible says, well, the early church did this and it looked pretty nice. But things that the Bible says you, as a person who calls yourself a churchgoer, need to be about. There's quite a few of those commands and and what we did is, is we summarized them in what is now our tagline, Believe, Gather, Connect, and Serve. And over the next four weeks, I want to talk about those four, those four words, and I want to talk about the commands that have led us to make our church about those four things, okay? Now, uh, today we're going to talk about that first word, which is believe. And I, I can admit to you that the, that the concept of believing is not necessarily a command to church, but it is so essential to church that it must be a part of what we do. If, you, if you'll open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, I'd like to read to you, and I think we're going to see some pretty profound things about the topic of belief and its importance to church. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. 
He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's interesting because I, I wrote this next line of my sermon before I was talking to my dad last night. And here's what I wrote. Maybe it is just me, but on first read, this passage is written in a semi-confusing way. And I was talking to my dad last night and we were talking about connect groups and he said, we don't like this passage for connect groups this week. It just seems like a big giant introduction. And, and that's how I felt when I first read it. But, but I think as we look just a little bit deeper at this passage, that then you're, you're going to see some really amazing things jump out about the importance of belief. So it starts off with a simple introduction of Paul. No big deal there. It was very common in Roman and Greek uh, letters to begin the letter with your name, the writer, uh, and say, hey, here's the person who is writing to you. I think we should do that in America. We sign it at the end, and, and we don't know who's, who's writing the thing the whole time that we're reading. And so the Romans and the Greeks had to figure it out. They put it right at the beginning. And you notice Paul says there, I'm an apostle. He doesn't always say this when he writes, but here he does because there were people in the church of, at Corinth who were actually questioning his apostleship. What's an apostle? An apostle is a person that God ordained at the beginning of the church to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and to proclaim it to the world and to start new ministries. I think Paul defines that pretty well, and so I would agree with him when he calls himself an apostle. The other thing that's of, of interest just at the, in that opening line is, is Sosthenes, and he comes up one other place in the Bible, and we can't be sure that it's the same guy, but I like to think it is, and it's in Acts 18. And in Acts 18, you read about a guy with the same name, who was a synagogue ruler, who put Paul on trial for preaching the gospel. And because of this, he's beaten. Now, there's two theories on why he was beaten for doing that. The first is that the Jews beat him because he gave Paul too fair of a trial. The other theory is that the Romans beat him because they were wasting his time by putting this guy named Paul on trial. But either way, you see that this guy's first experience really with the gospel message is to be beat. It's a negative experience. And yet... Here, in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies himself, if it's the same man, as a brother in Christ. And it really is a good reminder, whether it's him or not, of the power of the gospel and how it can take people from being so negative to it to being so positive about it that they would leave everything to minister with this guy named Paul. In verse 2, Paul identifies his audience, and I want you to pay very, very close attention to this. He says, to the church in Corinth, so he's writing to a church in Corinth. No big deal there. But notice this next part after the comma. He says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people. You see, he takes church and he makes it synonymous with this next sentence. He says, Church is a group of people who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, this word sanctified is, a, is an interesting word. It's the word that, that also gets translated holy. They're basically the same Greek word. They have different endings, and so they change them here. But, but it's basically the same word, and it's a word that gets translated sanctified or holy or set apart throughout the New Testament. Listen to this definition that I, that I found of it. To set in a state opposed to the common. So he's looking at this group of people and he's saying to the church, and let me define church for you, it's a group of people who have been set apart from normal, who have become something greater 
as they have come together in what is called the local church. He says that, that this group has been set apart to be holy. They've been set apart for a greater calling in this world. And, and you ask, well, what is it? What is it that makes Christians and a church abnormal, if you will? Well, there's two things, really. First of all, we are called to be moral. We are, to, we are called to fit with the moral character of God. And that's the first aspect of really being set apart, is, is that we should be living as a church and as individuals a life that is something greater that is something more pure, that is something closer to God than the rest of the world, people who do not call on Jesus Christ as their Lord. The second thing about being sanctified or set apart is that it means that we have a job to do, and that job is to bring glory to God. That job is to show God honorable and wonderful and powerful, to show Him to be everything that He is in this world that does not know Him. And so Paul looks at this church and he says, let me tell you what you are right from the outset. You are a group of people who have come together with the purpose of, of being more pure and more spiritually in line with God and for the purpose of glorifying God's holy name. That is what a church is. That's a pretty big deal for us, right, as we study church because it shows us that, that as we come together as a congregation, it's not just simply for this meeting, but it's, but it's with this great purpose that comes to us through our relationship with Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a second. He also says there that, that this grace is extended to everybody who calls Jesus Lord, or this set-apartness. And that's a fascinating thing to say, right? But he sets it in context. He says, look, the local church while they are called to be a people together, are not alone in this world. Because they are connected to everybody who looks at Jesus and claims that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. It seems like people have it one of two ways. Either they're very focused on the universal church, as theologians call it, Christians everywhere that are part of this thing called Christianity, or they're very focused on the local church and they forget about Everybody else out there. I've been accused of the latter, uh, for sure, and being too focused on the local church and not on the universal church enough. But, but the key that Paul shows us here is that we should see ourselves within both of those things. When you come to this church, Creekside, and you become a part of it, you become part of something that is very special and very unique and set apart for the glory of God. But you also must remember that you are connected to people everywhere who look at Jesus and call Him Lord. And recognize His authority over this world everywhere. And so we see these things right at the, at the beginning of this. And, and in verse 3, Paul says, Grace and peace to you. It's a very typical greeting. Uh, the Greeks always said grace to you when they greeted people. And the Jewish people always said peace to you. But Paul gives it this Christian slant. And he reminds us that these two things, both grace, the unmerited favor of God, and peace, a very difficult word to describe, come to us only through the Lord Jesus and the relationship that we have with God. And he explains this further as you move through the passage because he says this, I thank God for the grace given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 really is 
the central point in this entire passage. Everything that he said in verses 1 through 3 and everything that he will say after this in verses 5 through 9 hinges on this one fact, the grace of God coming into people's lives. Now let me remind you about that grace. That grace, it comes to us because God looked down from heaven and he said, those people down there are sinners. Every person on the planet of earth is a sinner. And I cannot be in the presence of sin. And so God said, what can I do to forgive them from their sins, to release them from the sins that they have committed so that I can have a relationship with them and I can, I can manifest myself in their presence for eternity? And, and he realized that what that would take was sending his own son to die on behalf of those sins. And so God sent his son in the person of Jesus and Jesus lived sinlessly for years and years. And, and after about 30 years of living sinlessly on this planet, he willingly died on a cross at the hands of the Roman government. And He did that for the sake of you. And in those moments that He died, it just wasn't a bad physical death, but God actually took away, His Father in Heaven took away His presence from His own Son. And so the spiritual aspect of that was horrific beyond anything that we have ever experienced. And in so doing, and so dying in that way, Jesus took on the punishment of us so that we may come into His presence and have a relationship with Him. God offered us the gift. But here's the thing about gifts. In order for a gift to matter, we have to accept the gift and we have to use the gift. And you think, well, everybody uses gifts that they give them. That's not exactly true. And before I say this next thing, I want to tell you that I really like my wife. Okay? You need to know that up front. I think she's great. Um, if we weren't married, I would want to be her friend. Uh, she's my favorite person to hang out with on the planet of Earth, unless I'm watching a sporting event, and then there's other people. But other than that, um, I, I really just like her. You know, I, I mean, I, I, we, I, there's so many things about her that I like. Okay, and that, that's just that's the truth, um, ex- except for one thing. <laughs> My wife never uses the gifts that I give her. I'm telling you what, I have an example of that. You can tell just by looking at this thing and how rink, uh, that's not the word, tangled this thing is that, that it's not used. In fact, I was looking for it this morning. I thought it would be easy to find. Uh, but it was in this little jewelry case that she has buried under some clothes and it was actually really difficult to find. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a little hard to tell. It's actually a watch, too. It's like a watch bracelet. It's multi-layered. It cost me more than I should have paid at the time back in my younger, less responsible days. And, and so it's this great thing. And it really is a wonderful symbol of, of knowing a gift to be there but not accepting it. This watch has been worn one time because I was angry that it never got worn once. Right? There's other things. I bought my wife a Kindle something you'd like, right? She reads on her phone. I got my... (laughs) It's true. I bought my wife this great massage thing. It's wonderful. I use it. She asked me for massages. You know, it's a funny deal. I I really... I I don't even like buying her gifts anymore. Most recently, for her birthday, that hasn't happened yet, but I couldn't wait to give it to her. I purchased something off her own Pinterest page. If you know Pinterest, it's it's a website and you can put things you like. I bought it for her. Her look on her face was like, eh, that's okay. And then I said, that's on your Pinterest page. And then, and then she said, well, 
it's good, I like it, I promise. And I said, okay, I, I believe you because I, I know you're a woman of character who wouldn't lie to me, you'll never wear it. But uh, then she tries it on and it's too big. She said, I will send it back immediately. You know where it's been sitting for the last week and a half? On the counter in our kitchen. Hasn't been sent back yet. You can tell she's not very concerned with getting the right size. And, and so, uh, my wife is a great picture for all her greatness uh, of, of what people do with Christianity. <laughs> They might know it's there. They might say, yeah, I believe that some guy named Jesus died for the sins of people. But they don't take a hold of it. They don't use that gift. John 3.16 is pretty famous. says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so many people look and they say, yeah, I, I think that might be true. But they never get to the believing step. And when the Bible talks about belief, it doesn't just mean like mental capacity. It talks about it means actually like giving your life to it and placing your trust in it. It's more than than the belief that we might have that, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to exist. It, it, it's a belief that that results in us giving our lives to something. And so what I need you to hear today is that Jesus grace only brings you into sanctification, set-apartness for His glory, and only brings you into the next things that we're going to talk about, and ultimately only brings you into salvation, into heaven, if you take a hold of it and use the gift that He gave you by saying, Lord, I'm going to give my life to You. Now, if you've done that, this next part is, is just so cool. And, and, and some people are going to go, well, I already believe, and so I got that aspect of our church pretty well taken care of. We got the believe part, and I'm here, I'm gathering. But, but I, I just want you to notice uh, what it says next in verse 5. For in Him you have been enriched in every way. Paul uses this money term to describe the church. Now, it's easy to read the Bible and just make it all about you because we are Americans and we are so individualistic in our thinking. But when Paul writes many of the books in the New Testament, he's writing to a congregation, a church like ours, right? You see that? And so when he says here, you have been enriched, he uses this money term to say, you've been made rich. There's no, there's no trickiness behind it. But he's talking to the congregation as a whole, okay? Which makes sense in a second because then he says, with all kinds of speech and knowledge... Okay, and commentators differ on what they think, but we can see that, that there's gifts of speech and knowledge that come into a congregation. And then in verse 7, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. And so Paul says, look, when you believe and you become a church, a separated, set-apart church for the glory of God, you do not lack anything because you have been enriched through these things called spiritual gifts. If you flipped over to Roman, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, that's the chapter, something that we will talk about in a few weeks, you see this great description of the spiritual gifts. But the point that Paul makes is this. In a church, when believers come together, they are each uniquely equipped so that a church, a congregation, has everything that it needs to glorify God. As an individual, you may not have everything that you need to glorify God. In fact, I would go out on a limb and say that you, that you probably don't. But as a congregation, a group of people who gather in the presence of God and, and who call themselves a local church that are actually believers, they now have everything that they need for the glorification of God. And so if you are a believer, what I want you to hear today 
is that you need to, if you're fully going to be committed to a church and follow the commands of God, you need to recognize what comes with the belief that you have in Jesus. Jesus has not just saved you from hell, He has saved you to something. And He's really saved you to, while you're on this earth, a connection to a local church where you use your gifts that He's uniquely given to you in order that that church has everything that it needs. You see, belief is important because you cannot be a full part of church without a belief that Jesus is the Savior of the world and giving your life to Him. But it's also important if we can say, I do believe and so I know that God has equipped me to be an important part of this church. I think people don't understand this and so they're so quick to go from one church to another. But what happens in those moments is they're taking, they're taking away from that church. Now, God replenishes and, and, and brings along the people that He needs in order for that church to have everything again. And He changes the vision of churches in order that they can do everything that He's called them to do with the gifts that they have. But really, you are. If you are a believer that gathers with your brothers and sisters in, in a local congregation, you are an important piece of that church having everything it needs. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the Avengers... You may have heard of this movie. I'm pretty excited about this. I'm not a superhero guy, so I got on Wikipedia yesterday because it seemed Avenger-like. Uh, and I read about him. I have a little bit more of an understanding uh, about the Avengers. You've heard of the movie? No? This, this is Captain America. I did see Captain America in theaters. Captain America is kind of the leader of, of this group of, of people. But, but these people have been uniquely equipped in, in different ways. They've become superheroes. You have uh, the Hulk, if I can name them, who's green. That's a bummer. But he's also big and strong, and, and he can run right through things. Okay, And, and you, have, uh, you have Iron Man who has the ability to fly, and he has this really cool suit, and so he can fly around. And you have Captain America, he has a cool frisbee, um, also known as a shield, that he can actually throw, if I can do it for you. Oh, hey! Uh, and so Captain America has his own unique skill set, and then there's Thor, who's actually part God, and I don't know how that's fair. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's a real superhero to me. And there, there's a couple others, right? Uh, and so uh, what happens with the Avengers is the Avengers come together to save the world. And it's very fascinating because as you read Wikipedia, it even says right there on Wikipedia, it says that the plots are always different in the Avengers stories, but one thing remains the same, that it is a group who assembles in order to f- defend the world. They come together and they bring these unique abilities, these unique skills together in, in order that... They can defend the world and do things that they never could have done alone. I'll tell you about it. Watch my See that? Wait. Wait for it. See if I can... Way to go, soldier. Wait for Avengers, it. Stand and fight. Not that one. Nope. True. Together with this compadre. Wait for it. There it is. You got Iron Man flying around covering the perimeter. Wait, here it comes. I know this one's next. Get it in that. There, 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 there. Thor, hits him with all you've got. Thor hits him with all he ready now. You see, Thor hits him with all Hulk that he got. Smash. And Hulk smashes, and then this is the big line right here. Avengers. Together we defend the world. 
to isn't that beautiful right there and a fantastic picture of what church ought to be believers come together in order to bring this world something better that they could not do alone belief is key because when we believe we are uniquely equipped and we become superheroes in our own right and we have these special abilities and as a group of believers not just a group of people, but as a group of believers gather and call themselves a church, then we become something great and we can do things to glorify God. Now here's the thing about that in, in our congregation. Uh, in front of you there's a, there's a puzzle piece and, and uh, somewhere in front of you there should be a puzzle piece. And, and it's like a puzzle, right? And God brings all these puzzle pieces together. And this is actually an Avenger puzzle. Uh, isn't that cool? From the Dollar Tree. Uh, and, and so he brings all these pieces together. But what happens, I think, sometimes is that you actually have people within a congregation who are not believers. And, and so they don't really have the puzzle piece. God has not equipped them in any unique way because they're not believers. But then you have other people who, who just who have these unique giftings, but they don't recognize what happens in the course of believing. They don't recognize that belief makes them an integral part of what a church is. And and so they just hold on to their puzzle piece and they never do anything with it that is of benefit. They don't assemble together in order that the world might be changed. And and so here here's what I want. We're We're going to pass the communion plate around. Uh, and, and 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 we're going to pass the offering plate in just a second on this next song, and then I'll come back and we'll do communion. But but as the offering plate passes, I just want you to consider dropping this in the offering plate, the puzzle piece that you have. Don't do it if you don't care. But but here, here's what I would encourage: if if you drop it in, what I want you to to be saying through dropping that into the the offering basket is really this. I want to be a person who really gives their life to Jesus and is uniquely equipped. And I recognize that when I do that, I become an important part of the church. And if you drop it in there, then I, I, don't, I won't know your name or anything, but I'll just know that, that you're taking that seriously and it'll be a tangible way for you to think about that. We need you at this church to believe in Jesus, not just for your sake, but for our sake so that we can do more. But we also need you at this church who are believers to say, look, I understand that that belief has called me to something greater. And we need you to step up and be a very real and committed part of it. Will you guys pray with me as the band comes forward and the ushers get ready to pass the offering and the communion? Lord, I thank you for your grace that has been offered to each of us. I pray, God, that we would accept that gift wholeheartedly. That everybody in this room would know your salvation by coming to a, a saving faith in you, Lord. God, I, I want to see people know you as their Savior. I do. And, and I want to see people equipped and, and set apart, Lord, because you haven't really lived until you've lived set apart for the glory of, of you, God. And, and so I pray that everybody in this room would come to that. And I pray for every person who has come to that, that place in this room that... <laughs> that they would take seriously the benefits of that faith, God, and, and they, would, they would offer the puzzle piece that is their lives to this congregation so that we together, God, can change the world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace that you sent here in, the, in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.